Our Heavenly Father, as your people this morning claim to be redeemed by the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come this morning humbly and yet boldly to celebrate your great goodness to us. We thank you, Father, that we can have access to the very throne room this morning. And we come this morning as men and women who are dependent beings, completely relying upon your mercy and your goodness. We celebrate that goodness this morning. We were able to stand here and sing and worship and celebrate. Our minds are functioning well. We physically, uh, for the most part, are well. We celebrate your goodness to us. Thank you for your mercy. And Father, we, are, we would be remiss this morning if we did not pause and say thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that has reconciled us not only to you, but reconciled us to each other we have this morning a fellowship that is warm and sweet, a fellowship that we long for weekly. And we look forward to the day when we can sit around your throne as we've sung this morning and be completely glorified and worship you in spirit and truth. Father, in the meantime, our prayer is that all of the things we do this morning and we say within this hour would be pleasing to you. It is our desire to worship you with sincere hearts and pure hearts. Father, this morning we come as a burdened people. We have many needs to lay before you. And you, Father, are not amiss. You understand our frailties. You understand our concerns. And you grieve with us. And Father, this morning as a nation, we have great needs. We are in uncertain days. Our president needs continually a continual uplifting in prayer. We lay him before you this morning. We ask that you guide the leaders of our nation as we go through these uncharted waters. Protect us, Father, and give us wisdom. But, Father, in all things, may we be men and women who are merciful and good. We pray this morning for the needs of this congregation. We have financial needs. We lift those up to you, and we pray that your people would give and give liberally so that the kingdom of God may be firmly established, and it may grow and prosper because your people have been faithful in their giving. We thank you for the way you have provided for us in all things. We are grateful. And now, Father, finally, we would pray that you would bless the preaching of the word as we come this morning to gather around the teaching of truth. We pray that it would do its work in our hearts. And, Father, there may be those this morning in this room who have never met Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. May this be the day that new life comes to them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of James. James chapter 1. This morning is the second part to two-part sermon that I started a couple of weeks ago, if you were here. We looked at the first half of James chapter 1 this morning. I want to finish with the last half of this chapter, James chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verses 16, and we'll read all the way through the chapter. James chapter 1, verse 16. James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. 
Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of God. We pray that the Lord would bless the reading and the preaching of his word. If you're here a couple of Sundays ago when we looked at this first chapter of James, you may remember some of the um, uh, significant issues of context that I want to review just quickly this morning before we look at these last few verses. This James who writes this letter is the James who was the half-brother of Jesus. He became known as James the Just, a man of immense piety. This is the James who chaired the first Jerusalem council, who becomes the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He is a man who's well acquainted with the particular predicament of the early Christians. Now guys, this James writes to a group of believers who are facing severe persecution. Now this may be of interest to you, it may help this morning. Do you remember when and where the, the followers of Christ were first called Christians? Remember that? It's found in Acts chapter 11. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now what's important about that is the word Christians, we've come to understand it as to mean followers of Christ. Uh, but in those days it was understood that if a person was a Christian, he was of the party of Jesus. Now, what this meant was that the Roman authorities considered the Christians as just another sect of Judaism. And so the first waves, the early waves of persecution that fell upon the early church were not coming from the Roman authorities. They were coming from Jews themselves, the Orthodox Jews, those Jewish brothers who considered the gospel very offensive. Remember the story in Acts chapter 7 and 8 where Stephen this young believer comes before the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of the Jews there in the temple. That some 71 men set upon that ruling body. And Stephen goes before the Sanhedrin. Remember the story in Acts 7 and 8. And he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You receive the law but, not, but have not yet obeyed the law. And the scripture says that those who heard Stephen's message that day were angry. They gnashed their teeth together. And you know what happened shortly after that? We see in the book of Acts, Stephen is stoned. And there on that particular day of Stephen's stoning, a man by the name of Saul is standing there and he holds the cloak of one of those participants in Stephen's stoning. Well, ladies and gentlemen, things don't get much better after that. In fact, they go downhill. And James looks around now as a pastor of the Jerusalem church 
And he sees that tremendous persecution has fallen upon the church, even those who are scattered abroad. In fact, in the prologue of this epistle, James addresses this letter to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. These were the, this was the diaspora, those Christians now who were scattered among the Roman world. And James, knowing that persecution has fallen upon the early church, has discovered that wrong thinking about God has begun to develop among the believers. Men were saying that God is tempting me. God is tempting us to evil. And then the logical pro- progression of that must be then that God cannot be altogether good. And so James comes before the people and he writes this letter and he presents in this first chapter three tests of true faith. Now what James is writing to the young church is this. Persecutions are sure to come. In fact, more persecutions are headed your way. It's imperative that you examine your faith and make sure that it's genuine. And he lays out here three tests of faith. A couple of weeks ago, we addressed the first two. The first one was the test of trials in verses 2 through 12. We discover there that James teaches us that God is at work in all things, that God never abandons us, even in those difficult days. We learned also that trials in and of themselves don't produce perseverance or maturity. James teaches us that perseverance through trials produces maturity. And then we come in verses 13 through 18, we looked at the issue of temptation. And I address this as the issue of good and evil. What is your belief, ladies and gentlemen, concerning the issue of good and evil? You better get this one right. More about that in just a second. The third test we see that we come to this morning is the test of the word. How do you respond to the test of the word? So this morning, our sermon is a test. A test is going to be given today. You'll take the test and you'll grade your own paper. Here's the test. The test I want you to take this morning as we look in the book of James is the test of the word. Take the test of the word with me today. Now, in verse 16 and 17, we began because these are two pivotal verses in this first chapter. For here, verse 16 and 17, James lays out his defense of the goodness of God. His argument is this, God cannot change. He is immutable. God cannot be less good or more good tomorrow than he is this very day. He does not change because God has no beginning and he has no end. So the psalmist could say the goodness of God endureth continually. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we see the goodness of God all about us. We've seen it this morning in just a few hours that we've been awake. God's goodness is illustrated and examined and seen in all of creation, all of the physical realm. I sat on my patio yesterday afternoon looking over some of these notes and watching the birds and the trees and on the ground feeding themselves. And I saw a cardinal come in and land in the tree in front of me. I looked at God's nature and I was reminded of the goodness of God. It's seen in all the physical realm. It's also seen in God's supreme creation. Mankind. We give testimony this morning to the goodness of God. You know, I'm able to stand here. You're able to sit in your pew this morning. Relatively speaking, we feel well because during the night our bodies have reproduced or regenerated thousands of cells that have died off. Our body continually keeps regenerating these cells. And we feel well because the body is an amazing thing. 
Do you know this morning, in the 35 minutes that I'll give this message, your eyelids will close about 480 times. They'll open and shut 480 times, and you'll hardly even notice it. And those eyelids are opening and closing, and in the process, they're protecting one of the most magnificent organs in all of the body, the human eyes. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. I can stand before you this morning and preach a sermon, hopefully, in a logical fashion. Make my argument from Scripture in a logical way, and hopefully it's received by logical thinking people because of the goodness of eyes of God. Are you going to lunch today after the service? <laughs> I bet he does. <laughs> when you sit down to lunch today and you taste uh, potato salad or fried chicken or a pot roast, you can testify to the goodness of God because located in strategic places on the tips of our tongue are uh, taste buds that help us desire and find enjoyment in food. We know the difference between bitter and sweet because God is good. But God's goodness to us is not limited just to the physical realm. The goodness of God also extends to the spiritual realm. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the scriptures teach us that at this very moment, God is restraining His wrath upon the human race because of His mercy and His goodness. James believed this. James chapter 2, verse 13. James says that mercy, the mercy of God, triumphs over judgment. And so we see this morning in these critical two verses, these pivotal verses, that James anchors his defense of the goodness of God in Old Testament theology. He takes us back to the book of Genesis. James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. I want you to know this morning that God, our heavenly Father, is committed to light God created the greater light and the lesser light. He created the greater light, the sun, to rule by day and the lesser light to rule by night. And yet the scriptures tell us that even these great lights vary in intensity, but not the goodness of God. And so with this foundational truth firmly established, now listen guys, get this, with this foundational truth firmly established, James now moves us. He points us to one of the ultimate expressions of God's goodness to the human race. Salvation, truth, life through the Word. Verse 18, look at it again. He, God, chose to give us birth through the Word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all He created. So here it is. The third test of James chapter 1. What is your response to the word of truth? And verses 19 through 27 that we've already read, James lays out here this triple response or this triple duty of ours in responding to the word. And James says that we ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. First, he says we're to be quick to listen. Now, guys, if we put this in truly in the context of James's world, it was important that the believers listened and that they listened well. As these young believers gathered in their house churches around the Roman world, it was important that they listened to truth because virtually all communication of the gospel was communicated orally. 
It was rare for anyone to have a copy of the Old Testament. For many, many years, the Old Testament was committed to memory. They thought it was an unsacred thing to even copy the Old Testament and give it to people. And so it was imperative that people listen to truth. In fact, these people ran the risk of spiritual impoverishment if they failed to listen intently to the word of truth. Well, I believe it's in God's sovereign plan that James here has put his finger on a great need in the church today. We are poor listeners. I was talking with a group of guys this week and at lunch and we were, I had made mention that it seems in, in the morning when I drive to the, to, the, to the office, I see more and more people talking on cell phones. It, it, you're, you're in the minority if, you're, if you don't have a cell phone and you're not talking on the way to work. In fact, I, I'm not quite used to seeing people talk without the phone to their ear. You ever pull up to a red light and you see a guy laughing and talking and you think, this guy is crazy. But then you realize he's got one of those pieces in his ear and he, he's not holding the, the, the set to his ear. And I realize we're, we're coming very close to the age of virtual communication. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's not far in the future that you'll be able to talk to anyone you want to anywhere in the world at any moment of the day. We're getting close. Virtual communication. Yet someone has said this is the age of of the dialogue of the deaf. All this communication going on, but we're not really good listeners. Let Let me suggest three reasons we're poor listeners today. Number one, a frenzied pace of life. We're so busy, even in all the talk going on, that we fail to really truly listen. I think that's why it's so hard for so many of us. When we come to a setting like this, one hour where we come in into the worship service and we listen to the preaching of the Word, where it's so hard for us to engage. We're still, and yet our minds are continuing this frenzied pace. We're tempted to think about what's going to happen after church today, what we're going to do tomorrow. We're in this mode of fast-paced living. Secondly, we're poor listeners because we're addicted to the visual media. We have an addiction to television. Thirdly, we're poor listeners because we're consumed with self. You ever talk to somebody that you're trying to tell them something and you're really, you really need to talk, and, but yet you sense they're not genuinely interested? You kind of lose your desire to tell them? We're consumed with self. Now, let me give you three things, three suggestions that will help us be better listeners. Number one, we ought to work at truly listening. Ladies and gentlemen, when you come into the sanctuary to worship on Sunday mornings, work at truly engaging in worship. Work at truly listening to the preaching of the Word. Listening communicates value. I learned this years ago as a husband. And Carla would come to me with issues or problems or something she wanted to discuss. I discovered as a husband years ago, she wasn't so much looking for answers, solutions to her problems. She wanted someone to listen because it communicates value. Work at listening to others. Secondly, limit your exposure to the visual media. If you don't, visual media will control you. There's so much virtual reality and real TV today that it's, I think it's caused us 
to, to be unattracted to, to the, the simple word of truth. It can't hold our attention. Thirdly, we ought to read the Bible with the intention and purpose of listening. We believe here at Grace that this is truth. The Word of God is the primary way in which God is establishing His kingdom in our lives. We put a premium upon truth. We ought to work at listening to truth. And when we do, ladies and gentlemen, it communicates value. Communicates value to the Father. James goes on to say that we ought to be slow to speak. Don't I have much time to spend here, but someone said here on this phrase that the greater the talker, the great talker is rarely the great listener. You find that to be true? I do. And then he says we ought to be slow to become angry. Never is the ear more closed than when anger is prevalent. Verse 21, he says we should humbly accept the word. Gang, if we're slow to hear, we have failed to accept the word of truth. Verse 22, he says, do what the word says. Because if the word is not obeyed, the word has not been received. Knowledge, we learn in the scripture, knowledge for knowledge's sake is nothing but idolatry. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. We are to do what the word says. And then we come to this built-in illustration. I love this when uh, the scriptures has an illustration already for you. You don't have to think up an illustration. And James gives this beautiful illustration in verse 23. Look at this verse again. He says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says... It's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after having looked at himself, goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, forgetting or not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all he does. Now, guys, what does here's the picture. It's a picture of a man that's looking over a table and there's a mirror on the table, and he's looking intently into the mirror. The other man is taking a casual glance at the mirror. He really doesn't look at it seriously enough. Now, what does a mirror reveal to us as we look into the, a mirror? Well, a mirror reveals to us the face that nature gave us, doesn't it? You ever take a good, hard, long look in the mirror? Uh, my girl, I've got two girls in our house, and uh, we have a an enormous collection of appliances that they use to get ready to go places. And we've got drawers full of curling irons that haven't worked in years and curling irons that work once in a while. And then there are the expensive curling irons that are working now. And then there are the old blow dryers and the new... I mean, just a, 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 a panoramic of, of appliances. And somewhere in that stash, there used to be this makeup mirror that... You ever seen one of those makeup mirrors? That, it's a freestanding mirror that they would set on the vanity or the tabletop. I think... I, I don't know where this one is. It's probably gone the way of the garage sale. But uh, one day, this mirror was sitting on the table... And uh, it's got it had two rows of lights on it, and you plug it into the wall, and I think it runs off 220 because the whole room lights up when you would turn this makeup mirror on. And they would sit in front of the makeup mirror and sweat trying to put on makeup, and it was just this battle, you know. One day I looked at this makeup mirror, it was on the table, and no one was around, and I looked at the mirror, and I noticed that it swiveled. There was, there's a mirror on the other side, dual mirrors. 
swiveled it around one day, this is a long time ago, and looked in this other side of the mirror, and it was like it was a mirror magnified times 100. I'd never looked at myself that way before. You see things you didn't even know existed. <laughs> uh, I saw... Uh, I saw a scar. You didn't even know I had a scar right here above this lip. I, I rarely see this scar. I looked at that scar and it reminded me of a scar that I got years ago when I was just four years old. Locked myself in the bathroom and got my dad's razor. My mother was pounding on the door. I, I, was, I wanted to shave like dad shaved. I saw that scar that I had forgotten about because I was looking intently into a mirror. I figured out that day what crows, why they called them crow's feet. <laughs> Things you don't see with just a casual glance. Ladies and gentlemen, in James' illustration, the Word of God is the mirror. It's the picture of a man who looks intently into the Word of God, the mirror of God's Word. And what does he discover? He discovers the heart of his birth. When we look intently into the Word of God, we see the true nature of our sin. We see our true identity. We see God for who He really is as holy. And we see ourselves. And then, there guys, that's the beginning. Those are the seeds of salvation. That's why the truth of God becomes the way to salvation. Because we see ourselves for who we really are. A few days ago, I pulled into one of these quick oil change places. One of these ten minute... Uh, guaranteed 10-minute oil changes. Except I, I, wanted, I needed a transmission service. So it was going to take about 30 or 35 minutes to get my transmission service. So the young man who was working on the car invited me to stand outside in uh, the car and talk with him to watch while he serviced my transmission. He was doing one of these flushes. So uh, it was a cool morning. I stood out beside and introduced myself. And his, his name was Craig. And, and we began to chat while he worked. And I found out that Craig had moved here just a couple of years ago from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Lives in Midtown. And Craig uh, uh, is dating a girl that he met a couple of years ago right after he moved here. And he, he said, uh, we, I just proposed to her. And we're starting to plan a wedding. So I said, well, Craig, uh, where do you guys attend church? Do you attend church anywhere? And Craig said, no, but... And when people say, no, but, I always listen because something's about to follow, something important. And Craig said, no, but, I have a good heart and I have a good soul. My dad always taught me to treat others as I would want them to treat me, and that's how I'm trying to live, live my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm doing pretty good. And I thought to myself, I didn't say this out loud, but I thought to myself, oh, Craig, it's much more serious than that. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig is like multitudes of people today who have a life view that grows out of a faulty view of man's nature. Craig's security comes from, comes from a conscience that is, that is faulty. Conscious is good, ladies and gentlemen, but it's not always dependable because of sin. Now, I, I share that story with you about Craig and my experience with that young man to make this point. What Craig needs is exposure to truth. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why it's so important that we invite people to church. That we invite our neighbors and friends and loved ones and relatives to come to church with us so they can be exposed to truth. In the month of October, we're going to have a neighbor Sunday. We're going to encourage people to bring their neighbors on a, on a Sunday in October. 
You know why we're doing that? Not to fill up a new sanctuary. We're having Neighbor Sunday at Grace because men and women need to be exposed to truth. That is the way of salvation. So the Word of God as a mirror brings salvation to us. But not only does it bring salvation, James says that it also nurtures that work of sanctification in our lives as Christians. I'm speaking now of that ongoing work of grace, that daily transformation that takes place in all of our lives. The Word of God plays a critical role in our sanctification. It is the primary means of grace available to us to bring about a transformed life. And as we become hearers of the Word, men and women who are quick to listen, and we receive the Word and we're obedient to the Word, and we crave and love the Word, as we begin to take in this new diet of truth, things change in our lives. We notice that a transformation is taking place. Even our appetites change because of the Word of God doing its transforming work in our lives. A couple of Fridays ago, I left the church uh, to uh, to run and get a hamburger, just a quick lunch. It was one of those days I didn't wasn't having a lunch appointment, and I don't like to eat by myself. So when I do like that, it's usually a quick thing. I go get it, eat, and come right back. Or sometimes I bring it to the office. But uh, I found a friend uh, at um, uh, one of the hamburger places, uh, the backyard burger in Germantown. I found Mike Myatt there one Friday afternoon having lunch. Well, the treat, I enjoyed being around Mike, but the real treat was Mike had his little three-year-old grandson with him, David Campbell. Now, everybody knows David Campbell, his little three-year-old guy. You may remember David. He was sitting back there on our first Christmas Eve communion service that we had in the sanctuary, this last Christmas Eve, standing back there between his grandparents. And Jimmy was up here preaching, that, uh, uh, presenting the, the sermon that night, and he was, kept saying... Uh, the Star of David, something about the Star of David. And finally, little David Campbell back there just took all he could take and he hollered out, Not me! Not me! It wasn't me! You know? And that's the David I'm talking about. He was sitting at Backyard Burger. I walked in and got in line to order my sandwich. I saw little David sitting over there swinging his legs under the chair and he was eating his chicken fingers and drinking one of these little children's coo drinks. You, you, you've seen the little Kool-Aid drink that comes in the plastic bottle that, that you break off the top and the kids can drink at. It comes with the kitty meals. Well, he was sitting there enjoying his lunch and drinking his Kool-Aid. Well, I ordered my sandwich and I asked the guy behind the counter, I said, do you, do you have ice cream here? Yes, sir. I said, well, would you put me two big scoops of ice cream in a bowl? I said, now I asked him, do you have a Hershey syrup? Yeah. I said, well, put a lot of Hershey syrup on that ice cream. So he, he, he gave me the ice cream and I, he put a cover over the, the top and I kind of hid it under some napkins and I went in and sat down with David and Mike and we enjoyed our lunch and I was watching just for the right time when David would finish up with his, with his uh, lunch. And he, he got, I think he had all he could ha- uh, take and so I said, I asked, David, do you like ice cream? Oh, I sure do. And I said, I, said, I got a surprise for you. And so I opened that ice cream up and slid it over there to David and he started eating that ice cream and Hershey syrup and, and I watched him and enjoying that ice cream. It was just a it's just a pleasure to watch him. He finally had a little chocolate lip, you know, under there, just having a blast. And about halfway through that ice cream, David reached over and he picked up that Kool-Aid. And he took a big drink out of that Kool-Aid. And he put it down on the table and he looked up at his granddad and he calls him Pops. He said, Pops, this Kool-Aid doesn't taste good anymore. And I thought, well, who would want Kool-Aid when you can have ice cream and Hershey's syrup? See, what happened in those few moments is, David began to adjust, experience something else, something much better. His taste had transformed. 
And so it is, ladies and gentlemen, with the Word of God. As we begin to take the Word of God in our life, and we hunger for truth, and we, we nourish our spiritual lives by this great diet of truth, things begin to change in our lives. A transformation begins to take place. Now, guys, I admonished you this morning. One of the surest tests of true faith is the heart's attitude towards sin. There should be a continuing increase in our hatred of all that's unholy. That's one of the primary tests of the Word. Now, lastly, this morning, I want us to consider another text. Flip back over just a few pages to uh, 2 Timothy. As we close, I want to draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we consider, finally, the test of the Word again. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Wish we had time to read all of this chapter, but this is Paul's second letter to his beloved Timothy, a brother in the faith, a, a minister of the gospel, and Paul is encouraging Timothy, but he's also offering very serious warnings. Timothy, you, you must be alert in these days, and he begins chapter three with these words. But mark this, Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, the context of this chapter, many of you have memorized parts of this chapter. The context of 2 Timothy 3 has to do with the importance of the Word of God in our lives. And Paul's admonition to Timothy is to stand firm. Don't forsake truth, for truth has a purpose in our lives. But he says in the beginning there, as we've read, he says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, ladies and gentlemen... Paul and Timothy, as well as James and the early believers, the first century church, Paul and Timothy lived in the last days. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in the last days. And Paul says, know this, mark it down, terrible times will come. Now what's interesting to me is these terrible times that are coming are not characterized. James, uh, Paul doesn't say anything about earthquakes or wars or rumors of wars or terrorism. He said the terrible times will be characterized by the conditions of men's hearts, the way men and women are living in the world. And this, by the way, this word terrible, is a, the NIV does a good job using the word terrible because it's very strong here. It's like perilous times will come. Grievous times are coming, uh, Timothy. And these grievous times will cause oppression. Men's hearts will be oppressed during these final days. And then he lays out this list of the conditions of men's lives. And they really can be categorized into three different areas. The first one, misdirected love. Paul tells Timothy that men will become lovers of self. Lovers of pleasure. Men will be lovers of leisure, lovers of sports, lovers of possessions, lovers of power, lovers of position, lovers of money. Men and husbands and wives will break their covenants because they've become lovers of self. The second category, Paul says, that will come, that you'll notice, is empty religion. People will actually flock to sanctuaries. They'll flock to synagogues and mosques and cathedrals and attempt to worship Professing to have religion, Paul says, but they'll, professing a form of godliness, but they'll have no power. Empty religion, 
Nothing short of hypocrisy. Let me ask you this morning. When was the last time you felt the prompting of the Spirit of God in your life to make a change, to eliminate something from your life, to add something to your life? When's the last time you felt the prompting of the Spirit of God in your own life and you answered that prompting in obedience? Empty religion. Professing a form of godliness, but no power. The third thing is, and you guessed it, abandonment of truth. Verse 7, he says, always learning. Men will be always learning, but never acknowledging truth. It's, It's amazing to me that Paul could say that there would be even Christians in churches who would clamor after truth, wanting more truth, but really never receiving truth, accepting truth. Always learning, but never acknowledging truth. Um, In one of his commentaries, uh, prologue, introductions to his commentary on Ephesians, Kent Hughes, who I I think he's no longer the pastor of the church at Wheaton, but where Wheaton Bible College is, but at least he used to be the pastor there, he not still is, but Kent Hughes offers these words of encouragement to men who would preach the gospel. And this is found in his introduction to his epistle on Ephesians, or his commentary on Ephesians. Kent Hughes says this to preachers. He's he's talking to preachers. He says, there is a danger endemic to preaching, which is having your hands and your hearts cauterized by holy things. Holy things. He says it's like the train conductor who begins to believe that he has visited all the places that he's announced because of his long and loud heralding of them. A lot of truth to that. But for application this morning, can I change it just a bit? There is a danger, endemic danger, to evangelical Christians who sit Sunday after Sunday And they listen to the faithful proclamation of truth. And their hands and their hearts become cauterized by holy things. You're like, or you can become like the train conductor who believes he has visited all the places he's announced because of the long and loud heralding of them. So, how'd you do on the test this morning? The test of the word. One final thought. Obedience to truth will bring more truth, but failure to act upon truth will ultimately result in the loss of truth. My prayer this morning is that the word of Christ will dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have tried to be faithful to the preaching of the Word this morning. And we understand and we believe that Your Word is sharp as a double-edged sword. And it can divide joint and marrow. It can divide the soul and cut it asunder and expose sin. It's powerful. And we ask this morning that Your Word not return void. We ask that the preaching of the Word would pierce into hearts And Father, our prayer is 
that we may become greater lovers of truth. We thank you for truth, that it brings salvation. For most of us in this room this morning would still be lost had it not been for the truth of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this morning for the continued work of truth in our lives. I pray that the people of Grace Evan will be marked, will be known by their love for truth and their obedient lifestyle. Lord, work among us. Root out sin among us. And may we be a people that are truly people after God's own heart. Forgive us this morning, Father, for being lax in our love for truth. Forgive us if our scriptures have collected dust this week. Forgive us for not being students of the Word. Forgive us for watching more television than we spend in the Word of truth or meditation. Forgive us, Father, for letting the things of this world preoccupy our minds and distract us from kingdom values. We pray your work among us. Even now, Father, work that work of regeneration among the lost. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.